Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to episode 42 of the podcast series. We are so excited to have you with us, and thank you for the awesome questions you've submitted this month. We have some really great ones, and so we're going to dive right in. For DPs who have primarily worked on low-budget features with only local actors, what should they expect when working with a professional SAG actor who are well-known for the very first time? How are the A-B-list actors different to work with as opposed to unknown actors who don't have their own assistance on set? Are there any specific guidelines or rules to follow? what not to do, what to do, etc. Do they have to be treated delicately? Are egos something that play a major role? Thanks, Christian. Well, I'm going to let Shane take this question because obviously he's worked with a lot of actors. So take it away, Shane. All right. Hello, everyone. I uh, wanted to say a big shout out to all the Inner Circle members. Thank you so much for submitting all these questions. And like Lydia said, we have some really good ones today. So this one is, okay, if you're working with a SAG actor, 97% of the time, they are going to have an agent. And that agent is going to spell out exactly what you are going to have to do and what you cannot do and what you can do. This will be, you know, it's the kind of thing where there's 11 or 12 hour turnarounds for the actors. There's 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 just a lot of rules that go into being a SAG actor because they are, you know, the cream of the crop. So I would say that, you know, your agent is going to supply you with with all this from that actor the just in past i have to say that every actor is very unique and every actor is different there's some that just hang out on the set and uh i'll never forget jane fonda she 
wanted to stand in for herself. She didn't want me to use any of the stand-ins that they had uh, gotten us for the film. This was something that she wanted to stand in, so I lit her. And I also find a, a lot of older actors love that mentality because that's how it was before everything got so precious. And precious in the way that, you know, dealing with different actors and actresses, whether they want to be in there, whether they want to stand in for you. Usually it's the scenario where I light stand-ins. After seeing the rehearsal with the actors, they go away to get touched up and final looks and wardrobe and all that stuff. And uh, my team is out on set and we are finessing the light and getting it all dialed in with the stand-ins to the point where they literally can roll on set and we are able to roll. That is the perfect mix. But then there are some actors that love to stand in for for you because they know that their face is unique in many ways and they want me to light it to my best ability with them right there. And Jane Fon was one of those. Diane Kruger stood in. Aaron Paul, Amanda Seyfried on Fathers and Daughters. All They were all standing in for 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 themselves a lot of times because they knew it, it only sped up the process, which it does. But I would say, you know, there's, like I said before, you know, some are going to be a little more delicate in how you have to deal with them because they have been on set where the standard is set very high. And there are a lot of, you know, a lot of things that, that you have to go with. Most of them will need a separate trailer. They won't deal with a honey wagon that has four or five doors in it. Uh, so other actors are in other rooms. They'll need their whole trailer. They will need specific dietary requirements, specific workouts. They'll ask for specific rooms and accommodations. These are all things that are put into the agent's deal that you will kind of uh, come across the minute you sign one of these A-list SAG actors. And let's talk about, just to add to this a little bit, ad-libbing. And, you know, many times in my experience, there are very few takes necessary for that A-list type of actor because they're just so professional at doing what they do and they've had a lot of practice doing it. So it may be just a couple of takes and you have what you need with a very experienced director and, you know, actor. They play off of one another uh, in a very different way. I think, Shane, do you want to talk about how there may be some ad-libbing or if they have something that they want to contribute to the scene that they all of a sudden feel it may be beneficial? I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there, you know, that you may or may not have experienced because I think it's important for people to know versus just what, you know, a, a lower type of actor may may bring. Yeah, I mean, I think that more than anything, you're looking for the A-list talent to, I have to say that a lot of directors are there wanting the performance that they have read the script and they 
have embodied. The a lot of direction will come on some actors and actresses from the director, but a lot of times I find that the directors let them go with their instincts and then kind of corral those instincts into the performance that they were hoping for. So um, being very open and listening to their collaboration and and ideas are going to be very important when you're dealing with, you know, A-list talent. They come in with a point of view, just like I try to come in with a point of view as being a director of photography on how it should look and feel. They're going to come into a point of view about the character and who the character is. They've interpolated it. They've extrapolated the character and put them inside that character. And it might vary a little bit from what is written. They might want to change the past a little bit and, and alter that. And a lot of times they'll come on set and something that the director and the director of photography had figured out, and this is what the blocking is, the actors might say, no, my character would not do that. He or she is going to be more about just sitting over by the window and looking out of it. I'm not going to move around the whole place and I'm not going to go from this room to that room. I'm going to plant myself uh, because this is the emotion that I feel my character is going to go through. So I'd say, you know, what Lydia was kind of addressing, I think is very important because you want to know that just by signing a A-list actor, you want to listen to their point of view and you want to collaborate with them. This is, they bring a ton of experience. They bring a lot of, you know, heat behind their performance. Just recently, we were doing a content shoot that you all will be taking advantage of very soon within the inner circle and having that A-list talent of SAG actors on set and where they took the characters, you know, I, I never saw it coming sometimes. And it was so enlightening and so inspiring to to let them go and, and show, let them show you the way that they want to embody the characters. And lastly, I think it's critically important just to be natural. You know, I think that people become incredibly awkward around talent, especially if they're very famous and you're not used to that per se, and you kind of get in your own way. So I think just to be as natural as possible and as authentic as you possibly can. Yeah, be yourself. I mean, that's the biggest thing is just right. be yourself and don't get kind of in awe of, of all that. Just uh, let it roll. I mean, they're here to, to rock it out and that's enable that. Exactly. Okay, moving on to the next question. Just a reminder, we have a little bit of housekeeping that I wanted to do here. If your question is time sensitive, make sure to let us know about that time sensitivity because if you have a shoot coming up and you need answers quickly, just write time sensitive by your question. Otherwise, we really do pick randomly. So we want to make sure that, you know, we address you. So the next question is time sensitive. Hi, Shane. Thanks, as always, for your awesome content, especially with this last year's stuff. You've absolutely outdone yourself. Oh, well, thank you. 
Uh, for my question, I'm wrapping up prep for a passion project short that I'll be DPing and color grading. I have a good handle on how I'd like to light the talent, but the big thing that I really want to try and perfect with short is really good cinematic lighting on backgrounds and the general settings. In the past, it's often felt a bit like I was fumbling to get where I was happy with the frame, and I'd love to tighten up in this part of my skill set. Would you be up for sharing your mental process when it comes to these decisions, especially things like ratio levels between background, subject, color contrast, etc.? Thanks so much. Okay. This is a good one. And I, I want to kind of really hit this thing over the head, let's say. Um, the the If I had to kind of talk about the essence of lighting a background based on lighting your subject in the foreground is just go to any good black and white photography where you're seeing the key light hit one side of their face. You'll notice that the background usually behind that key light is darker. And then the other side of his face that is dark, there's usually a little more light to separate the character out. That is classic photography. And it's classic photography that is timeless. And that has kind of been my mantra. Obviously, if you're lighting a wide shot where the characters are moving all over the place and everything, you have to light in a way that feels balanced. And I'll go into that in a minute. But specifically talking about the close-up, just think about it in that simple way, ratio-wise. If the actor is lit from the camera right side, then the camera right side in the background is going to be darker. That way you're getting two tones. You're getting the light that's falling on his or her face. And then the background is a little darker. So it creates a three-dimensional quality. On the camera left side of the frame, on his face or her face, that would be, let's say, darker than I would take the camera left side background and make it brighter. So that dark side of the face would separate out. This is that classic photography that I learned from Herb Ritz and Matthew Ralston and uh, a lot of big gun photographers, Annie Libowitz. These uh, still photographers just take and grab that and shape that light in that uh, in that way. It creates a very three-dimensional quality. Now, Lighting the background, let's talk ratios. Let's say we have a wide shot. Well, obviously what I was addressing is more in the medium shot and close up and over the shoulders where you're creating that light and dark on each side. But in the wide shot, if the camera's moving around, then obviously you're going through all different tonalities and all different lighting you know, levels back there. I always start with the background first. The background is what I start to light. So you'll see me plop the camera down in a wide shot. I'll figure out my composition regards to, you know, the, the blocking of what we saw, uh, put the stand-ins in there and immediately get that composition for the wide shot. And I just start lighting the background. I'm either blasting lights through windows I'm hanging fluorescents or hanging little pin spots to do pictures, whatever the case may be. Everything is from the background. And then I work to the midground, and then I work to the foreground being our actors. So 
It's finding that composition for that wide shot quickly as you can with your stand-ins or, you know, obviously if you don't have stand-ins, just grabbing anyone to once you saw the blocking or if those actors are willing to stand in for you, then you just work out the blocking there with the actors. You find that composition, kick them out, start lighting the background and then move to your mid-ground and then to your foreground. And ratio-wise, it's not like I'm making the ratio in the background darker than the foreground. I'm lighting the background to be natural, okay? Natural in the setting that they are existing in. And then once you get them in there and they move around and you're like, oh, you know, that background's just a little hot. Let's take that down over there because it's it's uh, distracting me. You know, it's too bright in the background for, you know, where it lands in the shot or whatever. So these are things that you will start to see once you've set your composition, once you've lit the background, mid-ground and foreground, and then you start to finesse. Once the, you know, once you start to see the stand-ins move or the actors move, and then you realize, whoa, that's a little too bright. Let's take that down. Or wow, that's, it's so dark behind him that he's just dissolving or she's dissolving into the background. So we got to bring up that area a little bit. And this is kind of my method to my madness on how I light, you know, backgrounds, the midgrounds, and then the foregrounds. And this is something that I learned from Roger Deakins, studying him when I was coming up the ladder and working as a as an electrician and as a gaffer. A lot of what he would discuss in. Uh, you know, at American Cinematographer magazine was how he lights those backgrounds first. And it's something that I try to do always is, is starting back there, lighting it to what you feel that environment would be, and then lighting the talent in 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 relation to what's happening, like say you got a, a light flying through the window and it's skidding off the floor and, and you want to motivate that as the key light on somebody that has got this bounce light that's kicking off the floor that is illuminating your talent. Well, that's great. That's that, Then you know in the close-up, you can kind of manicure that and make it a little nicer or soften it or whatever. But in the wide shot, that is what you're responding to. You're responding Responding to the light that's happening in the background that then is going to then motivate your foreground. And that's a big part of, of the success. Okay. All I can say as a non-cinematographer in the group, the more I learn about cinematography, the more I realize how much I don't know. And I'm sure that a lot of you feel this way, especially when it comes to these subtleties. But I think that this is where studying the craft and really drilling down. You know, it takes years of practice. And, you know, I think sometimes we get really impatient with ourselves. Uh, I know I do within business. So I think it's really being patient with yourself and drilling down and, you know, picking maybe for the year a subtle technique that you want to capitalize on and really practice because it it's counterintuitive to me to hit the background first when you really want the subject to, you know, look amazing. But obviously it's not counterintuitive because that's how you get the best result, right? So 
And that's where you get your motivation from, right? right? So it's right. like lighting the background then motivates what you're doing in the foreground. But, you know, I, I want to I beat the dead horse here for a second uh, for all of our members because we've been hearing a lot of like, Shane, you speak way, everything that you're using is too much money. We don't have 18Ks. All we have is nook lights. All we have is these little LED lights and, and all this stuff. And I just want to continue to resonate this concept. Okay. I wanted bouncing and flying as far across the world as possible. Okay. When I'm studying to be a cinematographer, I'm not studying to be a one-man band. I'm studying to be Roger Deakins. I'm studying to be Bob Richardson. I'm studying to be Emmanuel Lebensky. Okay. And you are all looking to me to mentor you and guide you. And that's not going to be done with one light and a chimera or one light and a bounce card. That is pushing you to be uncomfortable. That's not giving you the solutions that just so you saw how I did it with one light and a hunk of gaffer's tape and some cheesy uh, black tablecloth that you're now going to take this and run with it and aspire and get the biggest gigs on the planet. This is something that you have to find inside your soul that's going to motivate you and push yourself to be uncomfortable and to listen to our thought process and not say, I'm not teaching at your level, because that is the last thing that you want me to do. And we have a lot of intermediate and advanced members who I would like to address uh, who have who have written me and said, please continue to keep the content at the extremely high level because what they're teasing out of it is the subtleties, the minutia, the the little tweaks that make the big difference. And I'll tell you, I consider myself to be pretty darn fearless, and so does Shane. And I'm pushing myself in business. I'm learning. I'm reading books about abundance so that I can, and about money and about, you know, charitable giving and all of these things so that I continue to share some of those concepts with you and I become better at what I'm providing. And there's a book that I've had my nose in nonstop that I'm obsessed with called The Soul of Money. And I'm going to bring concepts from this book by Lynn Twist into a lot of the podcast because so much of the way that we think and the the way that we behave in our lives has to do with our sense of abundance, our sense of how we relate to money. And this impacts exactly what Shane's saying because it impacts whether or not you think that you could ever get beyond the one light that you're using or at the intermediate level, could you jump into those really, you know, high end lighting lighting setups and blockings and everything. And, you know, at the hundred million dollar level, the bottom line is the money piece is not what it's about. It's about your mindset and your belief in yourself and your envisioning and your testing and tweaking and trying and pushing and never resting. And don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here on a high horse telling you that this is the way you have to uh, 
uh, learn by me and uh, take this way highway or the low road or the side road. But what I do know to be true is it's a trained practice that filters throughout every job set in the world. And it's how I learned. And I'm sharing that intimately with all of you. It's like I had the one, you know, open face light. I had the total light kit that I bounced into a silver umbrella and the stuff went all over the place and the room looked like the, the, the actors were lit in it, but the white walls around them I couldn't control and it looked just flat and it looked ugly. Well, we were, we've all been there. But you can take from my massive setups the exact skill set that's going to be required to then tame that total light into the silver umbrella and shape it and formulate it into a beautiful uh, piece of gold. Okay, awesome. And one last thing on this point before we move on to the next question. I'm so excited this year because Inner Circle members are reaching out to me with their ideas for us with their ideas for where we should be going. And this is very much a give and take, okay? We learn from you, you learn from us. It's the beauty of this film community. And globally, we're all in different situations in our, you know, marketplaces. And so what is really exciting to me is when you share with us and when you give us your ideas and when you give feedback in the give and take communication and relationships. So please continue to do that. Okay, next question. Time sensitive question number two comes from Jacob. And um, this says, hey, Shane and Lydia, thanks for picking my question, loving the inner circle. I'm a film student preparing for a shoot. I'm a film student preparing to shoot a short thesis. The main character is going to be a two D drawing while everything else will be live action. I am wondering what the best way to go about practically shooting the story, composition, lighting, framing. I thought of the American Express short you shot way back with Superman and Seinfeld. I promise I'm not stalking you. I'm studying ASC members' work for best practices. Anyway, how did you go about planning and executing your film, and how would you recommend the best way to tackle this challenge? All right, Jacob, that's a great question. So I've done this on uh, on several films, but just to throw out a couple, Terminator Salvation and this Superman and Seinfeld. Let's start there. On Superman and Seinfeld, we had a 2D, literally flash-drawn character being Superman. And the way we were able to do that so seamlessly is I had a person completely dressed in a green screen suit. And this green screen suit guy basically did everything, had held a conversation, knew all the dialogue, exactly what the uh, 2D character was supposed to deliver, and uh, with hand gestures and everything that you would want. Casting this green screen person is casting an actor that you want to 
physically be that 2D person. And that's what we did on Seinfeld and Superman. We had this this actor that dressed in this green suit that did all the the hand expressions and and uh, carrying, you know, specific things in his hand and sitting down curbside and shooting the shit and all these things that then, you know, Jerry Seinfeld could totally relate to. His eye lines were perfect. His gesturing and grabbing something and taking it from the individual. I remember, you know, like he was grabbing and holding cables in his hand and Jerry was looking to the cables. These are the kind of things that this is the best way to do it. And then in the post process, you just eliminate that green screen person and you put your 2D individual over the top of it. In Terminator Salvation, we did a gray individual. So on film, the gray person is better than the green person. And the gray person also has these circle tracking marks with all these gray scales and everything put all over his body so the visual effects team can extrapolate, you know, 3D elements. So when he turns his head, they can see how the figure uh, rotates and then they can match that. And this was the big Terminator fight sequence at the end of the movie in Terminator Salvation was all about this gray figure that you saw, you know, lurking and, and hunting down John Connor in that big steel factory. Well, it was not a steel factory. It was a steel factory in Terminator 2, but this one was a, a Terminator factory. So this was the, the secret sauce to be able to interact perfectly where the actor's eye lines matched perfectly and everything felt very seamless. All right. Moving on to the next question. Time's flying. We're rocking it out here. Uh, Shane and Lydia, thanks so much for everything you do. And I appreciate the passion you put in to the SIC. And you know what? You you are so welcome. And I have to tell you a little story. Um, I truly love these podcasts. They're one of my personal favorite things that we offer. And it's it's really so much fun for Shane and me to sit down together and hear from you and and thoughtfully answer. And I just want to say that we both wish you all well. And, you know, really every single member I just cherish so much. So we um, love you all. We do like a like a global family. And, and it's from our hearts. My question is about the industry and where it's heading. I'm constantly hearing about budgets dropping, shoot days becoming longer, and creativity is being pushed out the door. From my years in this industry, I know the following doesn't equate the success and creativity we all want. We have movies with little to no substance at all. We have TV shows that write themselves into the grave. Do you see this trend to continue forward until the industry isn't sustainable any longer? When is it too much and how can we change these nonsensical demands? I'd love to hear your perspective from all these years you both have been in the industry and how you've looked past the negative trends of filmmaking. Thank you, Salvador Bepis or Bepis. I'm not sure how to say your last name. Um, I just have one thing I want to say yeah, and then I'll let it. you dive in. I think that in every industry, including the film industry, we have rapid change 
and a lot of times not in the greatest direction. And I think that I'll let Shane speak first to this, but I just want to say that flexibility and fluidity are more critical at this time than ever before in our history. Because the rate that change is coming at us is is faster than ever before. And scientists are, are proving this. I mean, whether it's global warming, whether it's, you know, robotics, what whatever the change is, it impacts all of these different industries in very negative ways. So there is a silver lining, but I'll let Shane talk first. <laughs> All right, she'll fill in the silver lining. I'll go into doomsday mode. No, just kidding. Okay, so yes, the business is changing. I mean, I if I see another superhero movie that has been kind of, oh my God, it's just, we seem to not want to do anything unique anymore. And... I have to say, we had the lowest amount of superhero movies this year, and we had the highest amount of really great films. I, I was very, very impressed by the the slate of films. And again, they're more independent films. They're more, you know, low budget and, and not big budget films that I, I really grabbed a hold of. So, you know, I think there is creativity out there. It's just that this movie business is really trying to figure itself out. We went from producing 272 movies a year to producing 70. Okay. That is a big hit. So, you know, think about that. Two on the studio studio platform, 200 less studio movies. So on the independent sector, there is less as well. Everything is less. Is television getting like what you said? It writes itself to nonsensical demands. Well, I think there, the network television is exactly what you are saying. But the Netflix television and the HBO television and the Showtime television and the Hulu television and the Amazon television is incredibly exciting. So I think that, you know, the as people need to ingest content on as many platforms as possible, there will be, there's going to be a demand for what all of us love to do. But there's going to be some times where you're not necessarily doing something that is art in your mindset. And I have to say that anytime I I get somewhat down about the industry or bummed out about where it's headed or bummed out about what I have been working in the past, I kind of try to take a project that invigorates and and excites my soul. So after Terminator Salvation, I had shot my $200 million movie and and kind of that whole experience was what I saw was a lot of waste. A lot of people getting paid millions and millions of dollars of money and it was not going on the screen. It was being wasted. And just uh, just simple things seemed to cost millions of dollars. So I decided to take Act of Valor 
An Act of Valor was a very unique project. Uh, first glance of it, when the directors told me about it, it sounded like a documentary. When I read the script, I saw it as a very unique kind of narrative experience where we were using the real people to act in it and go out on real missions. Now, the what that did for me as a filmmaker is we were going to be a very small crew, like six people, 10 people, I think was, you know, which made most of that movie. You know, everyone talks about, well, I'm a one man band and this is all I got, Shane and everything. Well, act of valor. That, that's exactly what I had. I had six people. And I was the gaffer and I was the electrician and I ran my own power. I started my own generator. I ran my extension cords. And then I operated 97% of every image that you see in that film. So it's like it was awe-inspiring for me to get back to that type of filmmaking, kind of filmmaking that really excited me to get into this movie business. So choosing that that topic and that that film and that and the way we were going to make that film was awe-inspiring for me and it just rejuvenated me now those tones have come down and you get back on the the train of making this movie and that movie and and uh, the the studio system and the independent films that that just don't have the money and they don't market them correctly and you do these films that that are awesome but nobody sees them and you get that frustration and you get the wah 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 kind of bumness of, of what that's all about and then I do the same exact thing. I try to choose a project that is going to enlighten me, that's going to push me creatively, that's going to take me on a whole other journey to kind of reinvent the way I think. Okay, so I'm going to save you from yourself here for one second, because <laughs> I think what I hear you saying, and it's very critical, is that you love a new challenge. And so Terminator Salvation was great because it 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 was a huge budget and it was a studio picture. Act of Valor was great because it was a completely different type of project. And so I think it's about finding those challenges um, and not getting stuck in the rut of, let's say, $200 million feature or action picture after action picture after action picture, because then, you know, you your soul doesn't feel creatively fueled necessarily, nothing against action pictures, but it's just a certain way of telling a story versus a drama or a sports movie. Or So what I know to be true about Shane is that he constantly changes it up. And I think that this is where... I'm studying habits with my women entrepreneurs, and I think it's to be be aware of your habits, be aware of your choices, be aware of what you need to challenge yourself with this year. Say, think that in your head, envision it in your mind, say it in your speech, ask for what you want. Because what I know to be true about filmmakers is a lot of times a lot of assumptions are made. You assume that somebody knows exactly what you want to do because it's inside your head, but you're not really good at communicating it 
outbound. And so I've had a lot of conversations, especially with the millennial age group, and I'm not picking on millennials, but I'm just letting you know that y'all need to say what it is you want very specifically and go after it. And don't assume, okay? And and this goes for all of us. So um, I just wanted to bring that point up because, again, the women and I are discussing this, and I think that it's very, very important. And when you're setting intentions um, so that you don't get frustrated, be crystal clear. The more clear that you can be in the goals that you're setting for yourself and the type of movies that you want to get, with the budgets that you would like, with the crew size that you would like, with the people that you want to work with, the with the directors that you want to collaborate with, with the actors. I mean, as specific as you can get in your goal setting and envisioning it and speaking it to people, your agent, your friends, your family. These are the types of movies I want to do. These are the types of actors that I want to work with. You know, you'll be amazed at the results. So specificity matters. And the reason that some of our goals don't get hit is that we're not specific enough or we don't take the action steps necessary to get there. And then we get in high in the horse, frustrated mode. Okay. When it may not have anything to do with you per se, it's just that you didn't get specific enough. And so anyway, I just wanted to really get clear on that point because I think it's very, very important. Let's see. In terms of originality and inspiring yourself, um, the last thing that I I would like to say is um, I don't watch a lot of network television, and I really try to read. I try to travel. I try to get out in nature, and I think that you know, giving back not being sedentary, you know, really is so inspirational. It fuels your creative soul. So any ways that you can learn something new, travel the world, um, meet different people to inspire you, go to art galleries, you know, not sit on the couch watching TV. I think it's so inspirational going to a bookstore and looking at art books, whatever that is for you, um, taking a nature hike, whatever it is, it's just not getting out of your normal routine is incredibly inspirational. And having a buddy or somebody to push you out of your regular comfort zone, right? Because we all get stuck there in our habits. So, okay. Thank you so much. Great question. All right. Um, Let's see. Shane and Lydia, I've been an SIC member for one year now, and I have to say that this has been the best investment yet. Thank you for the wealth of knowledge. Well, you're welcome, Brennan, and thank you for that feedback that really, um, you know, inspires us. Yes, absolutely. I've been booking more gigs as a DP, which has been amazing, but of recent, I've felt uninspired and unoriginal. A lot of my work feels like it's directly been lifted from those that came before me. When you guys are trying to establish your voice, how did you go about doing it? What should I study or try to do? Thanks so much for your time, Brennan McCoy. Well, see, this kind of 
flows into what I was kind of talking about and Lydia talking about this uncomfortableness of trying to challenge yourself on, on new projects that aren't in something that you feel like you've done before or that people have done, you know, behind you. So, I, I mean, I have to say this, you know, it's very, very important for you to study the masters, just great, great directors and director photographies. I mean, think about Quentin Tarantino. Let's just go to Pulp Fiction. Okay. This is a guy who used to be a video store clerk. Okay. He didn't go to film school. He didn't do any of the stuff that, you know, other directors had done. If you look at Spielberg and Lucas and and those guys, you know, they went to USC film school. They went through the whole director's program. They did all that stuff. Quentin Tarantino was a video clerk, but he watched all of their movies and he looked and systematically ana analyzed them and shot per shot. And he also looked at foreign films. He didn't just, you know, keep it to America. He reached out to different foreign films, Chinese films, Japanese films, Korean films. He looked at the European films and, and he looked all over the world for inspiration. And he took like a cherry picker. He hopped up on this cherry picker and he picked the top of the tree. And then he moved down and he picked the little cherries on the left of the tree in the center of the tree. And he went down and he picked a little here and picked a little there. And he threw them into this hopper and he came out with Quentin Tarantino. So these are great things to do. I look at myself as a director of photography, and I know there's a little bit of Roger Deakins in me. There's a little bit of Bob Richardson in me. There's a little bit of Emmanuel Lebensky in me. There's, you know, I'm taking from these artists and I'm seeing how they do what they do. And then I try to come up with my own. And I think that... When you're looking for inspiration, like Lydia said, you know, you got to go to the the galleries, you got to go to the museums, you got to look at fine art books and photography. These are, are things for inspiration. And you kind of don't get caught up in like, if you feel like you're doing exactly what the people did before you, well, then, you know, try to think about it a, a different way and, and kind of study somebody that you didn't necessarily think was was in your um you know what you usually look at i i was flying to rome and i immediately put in this japanese film cuz i always try to watch as much foreign films as i can because i think that they have an incredible new eye. It's an eye that's not Hollywood. And this film was using very, very simple ideas to present a massive idea. Okay. And I thought to myself, wow, if this was Hollywood, it would have been this huge presentation and production and massive budget to be able to encapsulate this big idea that this film was all about. But this film did it very simply, and there was nothing 
that you lost with this simple approach. So challenge yourself. Believe in subtitles. Subtitles are your friend. Just watch, look at the imagery, and read the subtitles and go into the foreign film. It it will open your mind so much. And I'd like to say just two final thoughts on this question. The first is creativity, creative flow comes from quieting your mind and meditating. And this is not a religious uh, statement, okay? This is literally you, you quiet your mind, you get rid of the noise. You know, Shane does this very effectively in the evenings, and he always sets a, a time apart for quiet contemplation. And it's letting all the busyness and noise of the day just let go. And I do it very religiously in the mornings. And it's it's quieting your mind and listening to your breath and just really getting empty. And then a creative vision just kind of flows through you if you're open and listening. And I think so many times we get in our own way and we become so busy and our head becomes so clogged that there's no room for creativity to come through, okay? So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is Brendan Sweeney on our team who edits these podcasts for you every single month is the most dedicated researcher to the masters of and the craft of filmmaking that I have ever seen. And I just want to give a shout out to Brendan because Brendan challenges himself almost every single day to watch a film, to watch a Netflix series, to watch something, to learn and study the craft. He's a budding director, and he's the happiest person I know because he's constantly creatively inspired. He works like a madman. It's not like he's sitting on a sofa, just like, hey, I'm watching movies. He squeezes it in. It's his present to himself every single day, and it makes him such a happy individual. So this has to do with what my grandmother taught me, and that is you need to save a piece of your day to look forward to. Okay. And for me, that piece is at the end of the day in the stillness and the quiet. I'll read something I love. I'll watch a show I love with my mother-in-law and Shane. I, I have a piece of my day, no matter how insane and how crazy it is to look forward to. And Brendan is doing that and it, it creates happiness and inspiration. Yes, it does. All right. I'm going to take this question. Hi, Lydia. This question is for you. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> First off, thank you so much for all the hard work, Shane, and you are blessing for this community you have started. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I do think this community is extraordinary, and I thank everyone for giving their all uh, inside of it. My question is about understanding what is important in your career. The more time I devote to the whirlwind of filmmaking, I find that other places begin to lack in my life, like time with my friends or families or hobbies or just plain keeping up with the world around me. My question isn't so much about how to schedule my day, but to feel confident that my decisions, goals are worth it. How do Shane and you handle the pressure of spreading yourself thin and feeling underdeveloped? 
I appreciate it. Okay, this comes from Waldemar Schroeder, and uh, half of my family is German, so Waldemar, I really hope I pronounced your name correctly. Um, <laughs> I took three years of German, and I can only speak like 12 words. <laughs> I love the umlaut, Schroeder. Um, okay, so I think, and it's so funny because my women and I, in my women entrepreneurial group, which is a godsend for me, we're just discussing this. So I want you to think of a mental flower, okay? Because we're girls, you could make it a wheel, (laughs) (laughs) but I prefer the flower image. And so you have, think of a daisy. So you have the center of the flower, and then you have, let's just draw eight petals, So draw this in your mind, okay? So the flower in the center is you. And the eight petals going around the flower are all the other areas in your life. So let's say your career, your family, your exercise, your nutrition, your spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. And you can fill in- Your hobbies. Your hobbies. You can fill in all of the petals, you know, your friends. I mean, all of this, right? And what you need to do is rate each of the petals on a scale from zero to 10. And it's really helpful to do this, you know, every six to eight months, because what happens in our lives, as you said, is we get so busy, we don't realize what parts of us are wilting and what parts of us are very strong. And this gets back to habits because you will consistently see that in certain areas, you really just automatically don't devote as much time as you do in others. Now, I guarantee you career is very well taken care of, sought after, thought about, right? Because it's your livelihood. It's how you make money. It's all of those things. So let's pretend that career is a 10, okay, on zero to 10. And try to be as honest with yourself as possible with this exercise because it's incredibly helpful. So, and if you do it with your partner, spouse, or family, then you can all decide and see as a team. Now, let's just take this a step further because this really helps in your relationships. So you take your flower and you have your family do all of their flowers and you say to them, okay, look, and I'm just going to make it up, but I'm going to be going on a feature for the next, you know, four to six months. So, my family part is going to be very limited and I'm not going to spend as much time with you as I like. My my eight is going to go down to like a three during that feature time period, okay? Because you have very little time, you're shooting crazy hours, you're out of the country and, and I'm using Shane as an example here, you're on a different time zone. It's very limited. So during that that period, your family time is going to be, is going to wilt. So before you go on this feature and after you come back from the feature, you really need to pay attention to the the relationships, your friends, how you're exercising and taking care of yourself, your nutrition. I mean, all of these other areas that most likely will get lower numbers during the feature. So it's it's really, this is so helpful because it's a visual that your family can see that you all can share and you can plan ahead for the entire year on, you know, what you want to work on as a team, what you want to work on individually. And you can really set times or set dates, let's say, with your kids, if you have them, or your friends where you do a regular workout session. Um, when Just to get very practical, when my kids come home, 
um, from their respective schools, I make it my number one priority to schedule them in first. And Shane does too. So I'll say to my daughter, okay, look, we love hiking together. When do you want to do that? And, you know, because she has her friends, which are her high priority as a teen, she has us, she has doctor's appointments she's got to do. I mean, everybody's schedules are very demanding. And so one of the trickiest things that we have as a family is to take all of us and really try to figure out who wants to do what with whom and how is that going to look and when is there one-on-one time and et cetera, et cetera. So that's one practical thing from my life coaching days. It used to be a wheel. It's been around forever that, again, has morphed into a flower and is very practical. But that's a really good thing. I mean, I love that idea. And I, you know, it's one thing that we try to practice as well, because even when you see that that side of the the pedal is going to wilt, there's a way as a family where you can kind of circumnavigate the wilting and give it some water, even though you're going to be on location. So what we try to do is as a family, try to plan about this. So, you know, regular calls, FaceTime is absolutely huge. Seeing, you know, my beautiful wife, Lydia, at uh, eight in the morning when her hair is all disheveled and, <laughs> and she's get, hasn't gotten her coffee yet. True it, love, right? <laughs> it is so much more inspiring to me than than just a phone call. The same with the kids, you know, I'll I'll... FaceTime them and all of a sudden, you know, Kira's walking down the streets of Manhattan and she's got, you know, I can see the the cold breath coming out of her mouth and she's freezing to death and she's like, ah, the temperature just dropped like crazy. I'm freezing, you know, and and then you got Miles where, you know, I FaceTime in the room and yeah, how you doing, Miles? I'm just chilling. I'm just relaxing. I'm just chilling, Dad. Oh, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm just chilling. You know, it was easy. Military school. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how much chilling you're doing, but he finds a way to chill, which is good because he needs it. So, but these are things that, you know, try to not only do you can see that it's three or whatever, three out of 10, so that uh, pedal is going to wilt. But then as a family, you see that and say, okay, how can I make that a five or a six during this time than a two or a three? All right, next question. Uh, Well, hang on, because you know what? Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I do want to add one last thing. We're going to table this question. I'm going to leave it to be continued. We've never done this this in the podcast, right? So I want to add one last thing to Valdemar just really quickly, because as you can tell, it's a question for me. I rarely get those. So I just want to flush it out. Um, What I would like to say in closing is that you're never going to be perfect. You're always going to feel off balance. And at the end of the day, it's going to be good enough in certain areas and really great in others. But as long as you're thoughtful and as long as you try your hardest every day, Valdemar, that's all we can do. I have days where I totally blow it. And then you forgive yourself at the end of the day and you meditate and you're like, wow, I'm going to really need to be better tomorrow because today stank. And you know what? That's life. And that's okay. It's to be perfectly imperfect, if that makes sense. So I'll put a pin in it there. Um, What I want you all to think about, and this gets back to my book, The Soul of Money. Our last question is about giving and charitable giving. And it comes from Tony. And Tony, we so appreciate it. So I'm going to state the question 
and not give an answer on this podcast because you all have to tune in to next month and and hear it. But it's, no, I'm teasing, but it's something where I really want us to think so incredibly hard about this that it needs a month lag time period, okay? Because it's got a lot of layers and this gets back to my book, again, The Soul of Money with Lynn Twist, who's extraordinary, and she did The Hunger Project. So if you have not read this book, you absolutely need to. Tony asks, Lydia and Shane, so proud to be a part of the inner circle. I've learned so much of my time here and your dedication to helping us aspiring filmmakers is inspiring. I've also noticed that you have worked to help others through charitable giving. What causes do you hold dear and how can we as filmmakers help others? I love this question, Tony, because everybody should be asking themselves how they can help others. So stay tuned for podcast number 43, where we will take Tony's question first up and we wish you an incredible rest of your month. And thank you so much. And remember to submit those questions because that's what fuels all of us. This is your direct connection with Lydia and myself. And we, uh, this is not something that's very easy to do. It takes a lot of time and a lot of commitment to go through these questions, vet them out, and also really come up with the deepest and and, and darkest uh, tones to, to help you through your plight and hopefully inspire you and solve as, as many of your questions and, and problems and solutions that we can pass on to you. We love you, Inner Circle members. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. What helps you become a better filmmaker? Knowledge, practice, consistency. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. If you want your questions answered, join us at shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.